Hello and welcome to another edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. This podcast is proudly provided by Axon, helping dealers move more iron for almost 100 years. Find out more at axontire.com. Axon was started almost 100 years ago out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. It's that same passion that drives them today. With a vision for a better experience for both farmer and dealer, they set out to create a better way to move more iron. When you partner with Axon, you get immediate access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. Axon carries all major brands and sizes of tires, wheels, and tracks. From custom colors and sizes to fully customized wheels, you can have the solution for virtually any problem today's farmer is trying to solve. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. In the 21st century Hard-working people Working hard for you and me Moving higher Time and time again Through the years you'll find us here Moving higher Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 206. This podcast is proudly provided by Axon, helping dealers move more iron for almost 100 years. Find out more at axontire.com. Also, TractorZoom delivering insights, and they've got a product called Iron Comps, and I use it pretty regular to see what's going on in the auction marketplace. It's a great way to to see trends develop and and see what's uh, upcoming auctions and what they look like what uh you know how many machines have sold you know what's the inventory look like um great way to develop trend lines i i i, I use it all the time so if you're looking to use that iron comps and and get more of a feel for what's there use moving iron at checkout and you'll get a discount so this this week's guest is rich Pawson, and rich Pawson is someone i love having on the podcast man he comes with a ton of information about what's going on in not just the U.S. marketplace, but across the United States, uh, Canada, all the rest of the world too, and, and really just kind of dives in to what's really driving the marketplace. So Rich was kind enough to come on once a month, sit down with me, and uh, talk about what's going on. So Rich, I hope you're doing all right. It looks like uh, you got some of that, that uh, winter <laughs> storm that came through by the foot. We did. We got a foot. They they told us three inches, and we got a foot. So. Yeah, so give or take, right? Plus or minus, right? right? That's <laughs> right. how it works, right? Yep. <laughs> well, Rich, there's, there's no lack of things to talk about here, man. There's a million things going on. We've got a lot of lot of uh, volatility in the markets. Um, we've got a, a new president that's uh, cranking out the executive orders as fast as he can get them out there, and there are. Uh, Plenty of things that have changed across the landscape from what it was um, when, when Trump was in office as far as regulation, regulatory approach to things and, and, and what we see happening there. So the one thing I want to spend a little time with you on today, a question I get asked a lot, guys, you know, in the farming community that uh, are not so much worried about 21 as much as they are 22, 23, and 24, what's that long-term cycle look like? And the thing they bring up the most in that long-term cycle is interest rates and what does that look like and and with the amount of money that's being pumped out there by the by the uh, Federal Reserve and and there's really they're talking about another 1.9 billion dollars worth of, or not billion trillion dollars worth of stimulus to come down the pike um, again what's your thoughts on interest rates as you kind of look out across the next you know three to five years and uh, do you see you know something from where we're hanging out now is zero to the Fed coming out at 
at three and a half or four percent or something like that the next five years yeah so yeah for the next four or five years i think uh i think the trend is up for interest rates i feel very comfortable i think i might have been lucky enough fortunate enough to have called a, a super cycle bottom in interest rates in august relative to uh, the treasury type uh, products such as the 10-year note, 30-year bond. And I think the trend is up next 15, 25 years. Now, if you dig in the side of commercial uh, debt, uh, you'll find some interest rates are actually still going lower. Uh, it's going to take a time. It's a process. So I think I called the bottom on the treasury side. It may be a little different on the commercial, private money, corporate, uh, corporate bonds. But ultimately, I think they will come on, on board. And uh, yeah, I see rising interest rates in the next 15, 25 years. The most of the rise in terms of any kind of surge and very high rates will wait to sometime next decade. I'm, I'm convinced of that. However, rates have gone down for 40 years. We've gone to zero. We've had real, no, real uh, nominal rates below that. So, you know, it, it, it should not surprise us to see the 10-year note that's, what, bumped up against 1% or something like that. I don't know if I can bring that quick on my computer. But uh, we should not be surprised to maybe see the 10-year note run to like 3%. Um, and I'm trying to still bring that up. So, and to me, that sounds like still a low rate. I don't see a reason to get scared, but it depends on everyone's personal amount of debt and whether they've locked in rates and uh in fact i can see uh, for the 10-year treasury notice uh, up at 1.07 percent um so three percent is going to put rates back to around the 2018 high okay and i think that's that should be n normal very achieve achievable plausible if the economy is growing, and I'm very convinced the economy is going to grow, we will. We're licking this virus thing, and the great, or another great recession, as some people are calling it, and rates should go up as an economy grows. And you should want rates to go up soon after the recession's bottoming out to kind of prove that. And I think that's what we're doing. We're, we're getting some proof from the interest rate market. So one has to ask ourselves, can it go really to 3% in three years? Uh, well, we went from 1.4% to 3.2% from 2016 to 2018. So it certainly uh, could maybe not get quite that high this time around, but you know, it ought to get up at least 2.8, 2.6%. So you have to look at your own personal debt if you're not locked in. Uh, I'm very convinced on this super cycle stuff. I just, I'm not saying in the next 15, 20 years, there won't be times we bring rates back to 0% because you're going to get a recession every decade and you will bring the rates back. I'm just saying this bigger trend, however, is going to make for better recoveries and those future recessions could possibly not be as severe. And you just, you may not say it come all the way back to zero. And so frankly, I'd rather have my rates locked in and, and know what I got rather gamble on getting still lower rates. You know? Yeah, I just um, bought a house, so my uh, interest rate was like I can't remember what two and a quarter, two and three quarter. That's what it was on mm -hmm. on a thirty year fixed note, and that's that's cheap money, and that's that's yeah, that I, helps fuel a lot of things. You know, the way I look at it, even if government rates are rising and for some strange reason commercial rates keep coming down for another year or two, uh, that's probably about it, and then they'll be up. And I just see limited downside from here if those other types of rates are coming down. There's there's more upside potential here. Okay. So let's talk about the strength of the dollar a little bit. So the dollar has been <clears throat> kind of back and forth. We talked about last time you're on here, and you had mentioned that if the dollar got below 88, that there could be some 
some opportunities for some very inflationary type events to take place. So talk about what you see the dollar at, dollars at right now, and then how is that fueling what we see happening with, you know, the exports we see guys that are just, you know, getting out of the country as fast as we can get them out of here. Yeah. Um, the dollar, uh, at least the model worked well on the dollar. It said it ought to start turning up this month and it should be up into next month. Um, it should top out next month, be back down in March is what it's forecasting. So apparently it's warning us this is going to take a few weeks here. For some reason, they got to adjust their positions and we can have a stable to somewhat higher dollar. But I don't think, I don't think the dollar index goes to 92, but I'm allowing as high as 92 and it's currently a 90.54. Uh, looking out March and more so into May, June, July, uh, I think the dollar goes to a new low. It's going to take out uh, last year's low. Now, the dollar came down a considerable amount, but we're still in a long-term bear market. And so, you know, I'm not saying I can catch every little fluctuation along the way correctly and get some of the price levels correct, but basically I think we have lower to go. I, I think we'll see that 88 to 85. I've been using that for 10 years now saying that's got to be a good level to help out uh, exports of goods and services and um, help out the economy. And frankly, I still say it works opposite of what everybody tries to teach on the global scenario. I think a lower dollar actually helps quite a bit of the world, even though in theory on ma in the math it shouldn't work that way. But my goodness, I look at the evidence and saying, gosh, it looks like it does work that way sometimes. Mm -hmm. So to me, uh, you know, anybody on the global scene, I don't think you have to be turning pessimistic necessarily just because the U.S. dollar is going lower. And I do think we need a little better competitiveness. Uh, I think we've helped the world get better over decades now. And uh, yes, I, I think things are a little out of line. And I think the free market system is trying to correct that, get the dollar down there and better balance with the rest of the world. And that'll help us. Um, is it going below 85? You know, a lot of people thought that it was going to crash this year. I haven't heard any more updates from some of the banks that were saying that. Um, it may, but, you know, I'll just be pleased if it goes to 80, 85 uh, this year. And even if it doesn't, uh, I think the next four years, you could see the lower dollar. And that's quite possibly going to help inflation in the next four years and help interest rates go higher in the next four years. Now, I realize currency people will say, well, wait a minute. Um, Currencies have to be highly connected to interest rates. If you've got higher interest rates, you have stronger currencies. Um, the problem is you got to remember it's global. So right. it matters if, if our interest rates are going up, but they're not going up as fast as uh, interest rates in someplace else in the world, then our dollar will not rally as, as far relative to those countries. So we can keep the dollar going down because they're more excited about buying other currencies that are going to go up faster because of their interest rates are perhaps going up faster or they're already relatively high. So it gets a little more uh, complicated. So I'm not concerned of higher interest rates in the next four years propping up the dollar on us. I think there's too many other things going economically here. And I think also the dollar traders watch anything and everything they possibly can, even though they might be interest oriented, they are close watchers of inflation. And if they think they're more accurate or more concerned of low inflation, they're going to discount their bullish interest rate factor as bullish the dollar. They're going to discount that. And they're going to favor, their bias is going to swing over to saying, hey, sell the dollar if inflation's going higher. And I think that's going to be the primary story for them. Um, so bottom line is, yes, I'm still long-term bear dollar. Yes, we'll, we'll see times it's going to pop. And if it pops fast, that may cause some issues over in commodities at times, maybe even the stock market, because I'm convinced the stock market would prefer at least a stable dollar at these levels, if not a bit lower. It, it would like to also see our exports uh, 
yep. keep moving for us here. Yep. Okay, so let's talk about energy for a little bit. <clears throat> uh, Joe Biden came in, kept his promises, said he's going to shut down the Keystone Pipeline. They they did that, and they've you know took in taken away a lot of the uh, the the leases and stuff on federal ground uh, as far as drilling goes. Uh, you start looking at the pipeline situation and not really expanding any pipelines or updating pipelines as they come along. You can start seeing a lot more pressure being put on uh, the rail systems as you start looking at more and more refined fuels and more and more crude oil getting getting shipped around the country um, via truck and via train. Um, what's your thoughts on, on that? Um, and then what's your thoughts on if he puts a halt to fracking, uh, like we've talked about, like he's talked about doing, um, What's that look like for energy, and then kind of what's your what's your five year look out outlook on energy look like? I think uh, I think uh, at least crude oil has put in the lowest price we're going to see for several years now, but I also think crude oil is very limited uh, to the upside, maybe for many many decades. Um, eventually, I think crude oil will go out, and I'll explain that in a moment. But um, for the next five years, I think there could be some support there just because the economy is going to grow. We're going to see better demand. We're going to see greater gasoline consumption. It can be argued we're coming online with these electric cars so quickly. However, maybe it kind of limits the upside of that. So right for the moment, like I'm looking for this year, maybe crude oil can work up to $60. I really like the trend on the WTI right now, uh, crude oil futures. It's, it is a quiet trend, which I might make some people concerned that it's topping out, but normally in commodities, topping tops kind of a volatile, noisy situation, even in the stock market for that matter. Um, so I'm actually looking for a little setback in a few weeks in crude oil, but as I zoom out towards more, uh, Memorial Day, I think gasoline heads higher than Memorial Day. Crude oil has a history of not staying up that long, but it can stay up for a fair portion. So bottom line is I really don't see crude oil under $30 anytime now. I think $60 is going to act as a top for a while, and I think there's a little more upside near term here uh, in crude oil. Look, again, looking out four years, can it go over $60 in the next four to five years? Yes, but is it going to 80, 90? I, I don't see it. Maybe it can do that near the end of the decade when the economy should be at its best, but also peaking, and uh, maybe, maybe crude oil picks up on that or something. But now let me talk a little something in long term, because I just put out a special report a few minutes ago here. Uh, people have been really bugging me of talk the next 30, 40, 50 years, and they just fascinated what I've been digging up. And we just come up with a new alternative model uh, that I think is going to be the number one model for the economy and stock market. Um, and the other model will become a very close second, and we'll watch both of them at the same time. And what that model is suggesting is that, yes, there's probably trouble coming in the 2030s, 2040s for the stock market economy, probably commodities. We could even see commodities fall 30 to 60 percent if, if stocks want to fall out of bed by a serious amount. There's all kinds of issues that can go on there, and, and we could talk about more of that later if we have time or put it on another time. But what I want to point out is I realized that even though all this modeling over the past few decades was saying crude oil should reach a record high in the 2030s, I also realized fundamentally and economically it couldn't do it or shouldn't do it. So the model has its own argument going on, saying if we look at the business cycles, how prices behaved ever since 1890s, believe it or not, in crude oil, it should be a record high. Problem is, is we're bringing on these alternative energies so quickly um, that it's going to limit the upside. So I've thrown it out. I do not see a record high coming. And eventually, decades down the road, maybe hundreds of years down the road, I wouldn't be surprised crude oil staying in the ground. Natural gas, eventually doing that. Coal, 
may very well be out the door sooner than even crude oil. Now, before some people say, ah, that's crazy thinking and you know nobody can forecast that way out. Well, here's some issues to think about. And we have hydrogen that uh, I think we produce $118 billion around the world of hydrogen, and that's really nothing in the energy world. But there's going to be greater investment dollars. They're figuring out ways to make that more productive, more efficient, lower cost. And I think a big boom is coming. Well, I didn't see Bank America's report. All I saw was the headline. And headline said by 2050, 25% of crude oil uh, or energy consumption related to crude oil would shift to hydrogen. Well, that's a significant change. You're basically saying we're going to cut the crude oil industry by 25%. And it's going to be in this new industry of hydrogen. By the way, that could way down the road cause problems for ethanol. So we have to keep that in mind and, and corn. Uh, but these things are going to take a while to come on. So these are not issues in the next five years, okay? But it does send a message we're kind of on the right track of let's not get really bowled up on crude oil over the next few decades, all right? And we also have the fusion uh, and, and making electricity from fusion. Well, they've discovered fusion, but it's way too expensive. They actually can make less electricity out of the inputs into fusion. So it's a net loss or break even. But it's uh, many scientists think this decade they'll have the breakthrough. And if they get the breakthrough, I say in 2030s, you're going to hear this rushing sound of investment dollars in to create fusion and produce electricity. It's going to be a big, big game changer uh, for the rest of the century. Lots of electricity. And now we have General Motors coming out saying they want uh, all of their car production to be electric by 2035. Now, what I don't know is was that hybrids? and pure electric or what, but that's gonna make some impacts too. So we gotta be cautious here when looking way out, I don't think the future looks that bright for crude oil, but is it over and done and we're stuck with 50 to $30 prices all this decade and on and maybe eventually lower? No, I wouldn't be surprised we can get some spikes over 60, but I don't think we're gonna see $100 oil ever again. So you could use this as guidelines of just how one wants to protect their energy prices uh, as inputs or if they're speculating, you know, it seems to me you want to be more of a short-term, entry-year kind of trader. You don't buy oil and set on it for a very long time. <laughs> right. What do you think about when you're looking at um, what we see happening in the stock market right now and what we see happening in the commodity markets, this, these huge volatile swings that we see happening right now? So you see, like, um, this GameStop thing that's going on right now, the stock that's it's gained $100 every day for the past, I don't know how many days it's been doing that yeah. but um you see that kind of stuff happen there you see corn and soybeans where you have especially soybeans where you'll have a like last week for example i think soybeans lost a dollar 30 or something like that across the week they've gained the majority of that back thursday was a rough day um for uh soybeans yesterday i haven't seen my have been so busy i haven't seen my ticker for the day yet where soybeans are at but um You've just seen these huge swings, even in the even in the corn market. You know, we'll see five and ten cent swings in the market all day long. What what is what is what's what's driving this volatility that we see across the board? Yeah, it's uh, it's a big money moving around, and what it is is they're starting to break up. They've been very bullish since August in the grains. They started to get bullish last summer when they thought there might be a little weather problem. Then they got it wrong. They gave up on it when it was actually still occurring. And then in August, they started to get the USDA data, and they got on board, and they finally 
they've been betting on the idea that, well, if Biden gets elected, doesn't that actually increase the odds we're going to get this inflation? And no matter who gets elected, aren't we going to have more inflation because of all this money printing? And uh, they just really jumped on everything. You know, they had their macroeconomics finally bigger and better than ever in the inflation story. And then they also get some weather issues and they look at the S&Ds and saying, oh, it's tighter. And this stuff has been too cheap for too long. And it just came to make a perfect storm, if you will. Okay. Now, the problem is when commodities like corn, soybeans get extremely high, they've had a very lengthy bull run like what they've had. Eventually, you get people saying, all right, I got to take some profits. But if I'm wrong, I'm willing to jump back in. And so what they're really telling you is they want to become shorter and shorter term traders. They're concerned the bigger move is about over, but they're concerned nobody can predict it. And so they get a little uneasy and they start trying a little bit of different strategies here and there, and they're going to trade faster and faster. And that's what occurred. And what was it last week? Uh, I think it was corn or beans took that dive down to 1298 in the March futures. Yep. Yep. Um, that even threw me off because my model is saying, oh, it's going higher uh, later. But, and my risk management stuff kicked in and said, okay, you, you just got to temporarily give up on that idea and, and acknowledge this heavy dose of, uh, of selling. And I think that's what was going on with everybody else. I think the risk management stuff got a little too close to the market and they were selling for just the sake of selling. They were selling right. to make sure they preserved their money. They weren't necessarily analyzing, oh, this should go down now. And I think I caught them off the guard. And I th and then this Monday, I come in saying, well, you know, maybe they've damaged the market. Maybe it's going lower late in the week. But, you know, we got to be cautious. This could have been a little fake out back up. By Tuesday, I said, gosh, this thing, I think they're literally mad that they sold the prior week. And so they're just rushing right back in. And I set up new objectives for a new high for the year in corn and you know, the rest was history. They went there. Okay. And I really do think you threw, it threw some people off. And I think they were just downright ticked off and, and just rushed right back in again. It's not the best of thinking. It's normally a sign of coming to some kind of uh, top. So I do think next few months, there's got to be some kind of consolidation and correction in these grains. I think it's getting kind of high priced, but at least going into the end of the week here, I, I was still of a bullish mind in the corn, frankly. And we got that ethanol news, MADM China, kind of excited the corn market. So corn's now a little bit of the leader mm -hmm. when uh, soybeans are the recovery, but they haven't gone to a new high for the year either. And I think soybeans given us a clue that a lot of this bullish news is pretty much dialed in. And I, and I did warn people back when the USDA report came out, I said, you know, we got what we wanted. It's bullish. But you know what? <laughs> you know, we've had so many bullish reports since August. Pretty soon, people are going to look at the statistics saying, you know what, we're due for maybe not for a bearish report, but how much more bullish can it get? And how much higher prices, you know, what else is going to drive this higher? And I think that's what's concerning the market. And that's why it's getting a little choppy, a little slippery in here. But at the same time, they haven't done enough damage to say, hey, it's all over, you know. Right. But I'm watching for that. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm looking. I do think it's time, you know, time is coming to set it back. Now, what I'll, how about it going into summer? I'm not suggesting that it's going to be all over for the rest of the year. It could be. But I think uh, I think come summer, they're going to have to get a little nervous over weather because I don't see how we adjust the S&Ds enough to say, hey, that, those are big enough crops out of South America. Don't worry about it, you know. Um, and you can see that the global markets right now, they were watching Brazil and U.S., and now they're leaning a little more towards the U.S., which is actually a little bit stronger than Brazil right now, especially on the corn, okay? So uh, very interesting setups, and, and I think uh, 
it's fascinating. It's kind of getting, it's fascinating how the, the grain markets and stock market were kind of on the same page. And a lot of other commodities were on the same page. Uh, I also covered cotton and sugar and, and cocoa and coffee and all those in, earlier this week, or for months now, I've said, isn't it fascinating? Some of these fluctuations are kind of about the same time as stock market. So you're seeing this macro cross the board portfolios here of, hey, we want some commodities. We'll trade them in either direction. We want stocks, that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so what's going on in the stock market? Well, here again, it was time for a top in the stock market. And I called it uh, this week. Um, I was a little hesitant early in the week, but uh, today the market's down pretty good. I, I think we got the evidence. Um, we'll be warning when it's going to be the next great buy in the stock market. So we'll keep an, an eye on it. Uh, as far as all this news in the stock market in terms of the retail investors versus the hedge funds, and you probably hear of... Um, the Robinhood traders, right. uh, they're basically using the Robinhood app. Well, you know, I've been watching some of the young people. And, of course, my daughter is, is that age, is trading those kind of stocks. And and she's all for it, you know. I, who, who cares if we cause trouble for the hedge funders? And, uh, and I must say, some of the complaints are where they try to want to shut these people down. They want to try to rig the free market system here in the stock market. I, that, that's upsetting to me a bit. At the same time, Yes, they've been too bullish. They've shoved some of those stocks way too high. But, you know, uh, you know, sometimes the hedge funds and the professionals shove things way too high. And they may, I, think, I think we have to realize that these young people using something like Robinhood, which Robinhood, the only way they make money is from selling the data from their customers because they don't charge commissions. So the point is they're selling the data to let everybody know what their customers are doing, not individually by no means, they're private, but I'm just saying they let people know, well, they bought this stock for the last three days, they bought X amount. And so some of these funds go out and buy that data. There could be Robin, uh, some of the retail investors could be buying it uh, if they can't afford it. I bet they group up and buy it, (laughs) okay? And I just think the young people said, you know something, some of these funds, they'll, they'll be 75% of the stock, they'll be shorted. That's bizarre because normally you take, uh, let's say your company is a million shares. Normally you might see short traders get up to about 100,000 of that. They get up to about 10%. That's about it. And these days you're seeing some of these hedge funds really beat up on some of these companies uh, because they just don't think they deserve to exist. And is that fair? Is, is that correct? And so I think these young people are looking at saying, yeah, but you know, some of these hedge funds are really not very good at it. Everybody keeps praising them, how they're the smartest, the best, they work harder than everybody else. And I must admit, the track records aren't that great, <laughs> okay? So um, I think they're thinking, you know, these people can be wrong of betting on the downside of these companies. And I think they've learned how to figure out, create an indicator, and create a method to trade that and go against those big guys. And in my opinion, they're not, they're not really doing anything wrong. It's data that is available. You either pay for it or you get it free, but it's available and it's legal. Okay. Right. And so they're just trying to do their best with the analysis. So why do you pick on them when we've known for years for hedge funds are very secretive and they're out there digging data that trying to find something nobody else has. So I'm kind of with the young people on this, even though I granted, I think they've overdone it and, and they make these stocks go up too much and understand that can cause some problems. At the same time, I feel like 
Uh, I don't think it's necessary to come in with new regulations and mess mess with the free market system on this. I, I think there should be a better way uh, to work around this. All right. And yes, the young people will probably get clipped. But, you know, some of them made money. I just saw on TV a guy who was saying, well, my son, uh, you know, he made 50000 and he just took it out of the market. He didn't lose it all. And he just bought a house. Well, great for them. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. So uh, it, it's sad to see this. It gets very political, and uh, it is. A, but it is a war. I mean, I, some of these young people, they, they, if you watch how they tweet and, and they're chatting, they do act a bit vicious, and I don't think that's correct. But you know what? That's kind of the American way here, unfortunately, uh, at the moment. But I think. Uh, I think overall for the stock market, I don't think that's really going to cause problems for the entire market. It's those individual stocks, but I could be wrong on it. Uh, some of these brokers that are trying to hold back, they're worried about their own money that they have to put into the business and can that mm -hmm. cause problems. So there's issues that will be studied and probably should study, but I, uh, I hope they don't go too too quickly here and slap everybody on the wrist when it was quite possibly not necessary. That'll all work out uh, in the end. But nevertheless, for the overall healthiness of the stock market, yes, it is kind of high priced. And again, normally when these any kind of market gets high priced, it gets a little volatile, crazy, and and down sharply one day and right back up again until it's finally put in some kind of top. Well, uh, our market, the stock market, is getting a little bit slippery here. Uh, I think it is topping out. I think we're we're due for a correction. But as I zoom out. Uh, the stock market should be higher the next four to five years. So as far as adding that to what we just said on interest rates, inflation, commodities, it just looks like things can be uh, supported here uh, for a while. And I'm just looking to buy the dip in, in the stock market. I backed out of some, took some profit, and uh, I'll get back in and I'll let my subscribers know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and what kind of signal we have here. But uh, I still see a very good stock market uh, this next four years. And... Um, I think it's going to be staying up longer than that. I think we've got a whole decade, even though I realize there's people out there looking for a crash at any moment. And, and I don't mean a crash like what we saw earlier this, uh, last year. They're, they're looking for something bizarre as in 1929. Well, I just don't see it. Okay. And, uh, but this new special report I sent out, I've been saying all along the real disaster isn't coming to 2030s, 2040s. Well, this new model saying it might come as early as the end of this decade. It also could come later than what I'm calling for. But it's also saying the highest probability is still 20, late 2030s, early 2040s. So uh, very pleased with that model. And we'll be discussing that. It's going to get very interesting the rest of this decade as we get closer to the day that I will say sell everything. But right at the moment, I'd rather take profits along the way, buy them on dips and keep working this um, this higher. I think we've got some, some good profitability. I'm going to be putting out another special report showing what did the stock market do per decade going all the way back into the uh, early 1800s, believe it or not. And it's just fascinating. I don't know if it has anything predictive, but it's just fascinating. I think what it did teach me is maybe this decade, the best the stock market can do is is double. Well, that's pretty good money. <laughs> so <Right. Yeah. laughs> I'll yeah. take that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Double your, double your money. That's a, that's a pretty good, pretty good day at the office. No doubt about that. When you take a look at, uh, some other drivers of the economy, you know, you start looking at different things like, like gold, for example. Um, and then you, if you listen to, to Peter Schiff talk about what he has, he has this incredible just idea that he's, that he can't, he can't stand Bitcoin, obviously. So, um, and I think there's a lot of people that 
kind of waver back and forth. And I, I don't know what to think of it because I don't understand it, but that's that's a lot of it. But you start looking at some of these other indicators of of what you see happening in the economy, and you start looking at precious metals like gold, gold, silver, copper, you know, platinum, those kind of things, and what they're doing in the marketplace. Um, there's no real indicator there. I mean, yes, gold got to about two thousand bucks, I think, earlier in the year, and then it's, and it's kind of settled back down in that, into that eighteen hundred range. Um, but there's no big swings that you really see. Some days are off, and oh, those other things are there, but. I guess as you take a look at, at gold and you take a look at some of these other precious metals as key indicators of the economy, how do those stack up in your models and do you see any sign of you know, a, 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 a poise for gold or anything like that to take off based on some kind of inflationary news? Yeah, I think uh, obviously gold's been uh, corrected a bit here in right. August and October and basically moved sideways. And really, uh, I think it's a fairly tame correction. I, I think it's evolved from some taking profits and wondering, did they do the right thing? And now evolving to, you know, this could be a little higher floor price than what we had when last time we bought gold and maybe we should be prepared for the next run up. And so I think they're starting to nibble at it. I think they're doing the correct thing. I think we'll put a bottom in gold uh, sometime in, in February. I think it should dip a little bit uh, on concerns of the stock market in the next couple of weeks, but I don't know if it's going down a lot. And I think it's just, I think what it's really did is from February of last year, or I guess on my chart, I guess it's March on into uh, August. I think it was just dialing in all this money printing, the idea of the yes, we'll get through this virus. And then you got all this money printed and there's going to be inflation. And now what they're saying is, well, we now need to see the proof for that working. So they took a little profit. And it's just hesitating, and it's just waiting to start seeing that proof. And my guess is gold will be higher later uh, this year. I think it's going higher over the next four years, but around mid-decade, I think gold can top out and top out well ahead of the stock market and economy. I'm not sure exactly why that is. That may be a sign maybe the highest of inflation, the fastest pace, in other words, is going to occur over the next four years, and then it kind of teams down going into uh, later in the decade. So I may return into a long, reluctant long-term bear in gold by mid-decade, but I'll probably be a, try to be a super cycle bull into uh, the 2030s, unless this new model says, no, <laughs> we, we do have this problem coming sooner than uh, the late 2030s. But, um, so, but anyways, at least the next few years, I think, the, I, I think gold's going over 2,000. I don't know as it's going all the way up to 2,400. I think some of my favorite people threw out 2,400 last year as a target, but maybe a limit. And I'm kind of with that. But the gold bugs, you know, they all, they often talk of 3,000, 5,000, 10,000. Can't rule it out. Can't rule higher than 24. Uh, but I think it's just going to have a nice bull mo up move here in the next four years. And if it does better, great. So much the better, you know. Uh, I do own gold here. It's very tall, small position, but I'm not going to... Uh, I'm risking even more than I originally thought because I want it... I think it's just consolidating. It's hesitating before moving higher, I don't think it's a start of a new uh, significant bear market. Uh, my smallest long-term stuff did say, yeah, you put a top in in August, but it's saying, you know what, you could put a that minor long-term bottom in in just the next few weeks, next, next couple of months, something like that. And so I'm focusing more on the longer-term uh, cycles, business cycles are saying there's going to be more demand for gold coming. And uh, I think it just fits in with our... our uh, inflation scenario. And I think the gold people 
are smart enough to recognize that even though interest rates are going up, that you want interest rates going up when you come out of a recession, because that's a sign you are coming out of a recession. You're going into a growing economy. So I think at first they'll view interest, higher interest rates as a positive. And hopefully the stock market will as well. Yeah. Uh, but but later, <laughs> yes, interest rates will get too high and everybody will flip the other way saying, well, this is no longer such a good thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yep. So let's talk about this from a, from a U.S. economy standpoint and maybe to some extent across around the world this may be a similar, a similar thing to happen, but definitely happened in the U.S. Post-COVID, um, as things start to calm down and, and more vaccines and things like that are getting out and more people are are you know acquiring quote unquote herd immunity and those kind of things more and more people are taking a look at some of the unrest that we're seeing in, in the larger cities and they're saying you know what i'm going to move out of new york city and i'm going to go move to charlotte north carolina or nashville or wherever it is and you're starting to see this this move of 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 income um out out of one area and into another and what that takes to reestablish those those economic hubs that we that we're used to having in these in these major 20 cities that we have throughout the United States and then you start looking at building material costs and those kind of things and and how all that stuff is is kind of working together what kind of effect do you think that'll have on the overall economy not necessarily long term but the short term you know kind of a 5 or 7 year expansion as as these population centers tend to readjust themselves yeah, um, I think it's going to be a bit tricky in the next four years because, one, there's already been a rush to get out of these bigger cities. Uh-huh. And to so they've been buying homes. My family has a real estate business and farming business in um, upstate New York, and they saw a rush for people getting out of New York City. They were very, very busy in real estate, uh, even though it was very complicated because you couldn't meet in person and mm-hmm. you know, it's going to cause complications for closing. The point is they got them done and they got business done. Um to me, it's obvious as we work our way out of this virus, that demand will probably back off. And in some locations, prices have already moved up too quickly here. Um, so I think there'll be a back off. On the other hand, I think we these people buying these properties aren't necessarily doing it. Well, I just wanted to buy it for a year or two. You don't do that. You know, you're going to hang on it for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And so I think they're they're bought and sold. They're going to hang on them. But I think there's going to be that mentality where other people may still want to buy later in the decade of saying, I'd like an alternative here of what I'm doing. And I think a lot of people have learned they really like working remotely. Okay, I've worked most of my non-farming career, most of my financial career here has been working remotely, even though I've worked some, some big firms and had to work in our headquarters at times, uh, even global headquarters. But, you know, I prefer working there. I think I do my best analysis that way. And... Uh, I realize the managers of these companies are going to try to fight back saying, oh, we got to keep people in the office here. And uh, they're not going to let everybody do it, but I think we've turned a corner. I, I felt like we turned a corner decades ago that we were on our way to more remote, but I was looking like it was wrong here about uh, a portion of last decade when you started seeing companies saying, well, we want a brand new headquarters and pull more people into a central location. Uh, I think they're going to change their attitude on that. So I think there's an opportunity for people to try to make money as far as still trying to get people out of these bigger cities, do some business in, in the rural 
communities if you want them. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes yep. you might say, "Well, I'd like the business," but on the other hand, <laughs> so <laughs> is the juice worth the squeeze? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but but I do think we probably are getting close. to the rush is about over in, in that regards. Now, that doesn't mean now that the entire real estate market is vulnerable. In fact, I'm trying to look up my uh, one of my real estate indexes here, and I got so many things on my computer that I'm not finding it. But I. I um, I very I'm very convinced that the uh, real estate relative to certain indexes I follow, and it's mostly REITs, so it's investment kind of things where you're investing in shopping malls, office buildings, apartments. But it was due for a cyclical collapse, just like what we saw in the stock market and economy, and that it was due to turn up. And I I, I think it's bottomed. I think we've seen seen the turn. And uh, my guess is we'll see those kind of indicators do fairly well for the rest of this decade. Uh, you do have to be cautious. They can top out ahead of the economy and stock market, so they might not stay up as long. But I think, uh, there's my REIT index. Let me pull that up, make sure I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, you know, this REIT index I'm following, it's kind of following with the stock market saying, yeah, it might dip here in the next few weeks, but later in the year, it should be higher. And the next four years, it should be higher. And it's probably going to be somewhat higher. I don't want to get too bold up. Somewhat higher going into later this decade. So to me, I don't see, I don't see a problem that for some reason this virus has just trashed the real estate market. There's no recovery. We're going to recover. There's going to be opportunities. People are going to make some money on the way up on things. But I also don't want to get overly bullish because you have people that you know, their renters aren't paying them. So they've right. been, you know, they've had their fingers burned a bit here. They're scared. They're nervous about their future. So are they going to rush right out and buy a new apartment building? Are they going to buy the one that uh, somebody wants to desperately get rid of down the street? They may not. So I don't want to impress upon people big money is going to be made in the next few years of real estate. But I honestly think, at least my indicators, very convinced we've seen the worst. Now the question is, how long does it take uh, to build up, but somehow, some way, I think eventually real estate benefits from this growing economy later in the decade. It just may not benefit as well as it has, and it may not be as crazy as it was in the 2000s when I remember I watched my uh, home triple in value in literally 30 days, and I thought, what the heck is going on? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not saying I don't think we're going to see anything like that uh, unless it's a you know, small location. That's the thing with real estate. You can always get those little odd things that happen due to location, location, location. But right. uh, but I think the overall trend is uh, to me, there should be some 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 value things in here and, and real estate that got beat up with this virus recession that someday we will get back together. But at the same time, I fully understand people are going to be a bit cautious how much they want to put into it. Right. So there's been. On more than one occasion, I've listened to guys talk about the fear they have of a collapsing um, commercial real estate market because of you know people working remote now. All of a sudden, these big companies realize I don't need to pay you know twenty thousand dollars a month for this huge office space over here. I can get you know half of them work over here. So now we're going to get this you know two thousand dollar a month space and all this big commercial real estate is going to be hanging out there that nobody uses and some have referenced a very similar collapse to, you know, kind of what we saw in the, in the two in the two thousand eight real estate uh, crash and and how that affected the overall overall markets and those kind of things. Do you do you sense anything like that from from this 
you know, because I just think about places like New York City where there's less people. There's still a ton of people live there, but I mean, more people are moving out, more people work, working remotely. I mean, I guess what's your thoughts on on that scenario? Yeah, I mean, some of those multi-million dollar apartments, man, they're down like 30, 40, 50 percent. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was overdue. I mean, it was getting ridiculously out of hand. They should have known they had that kind of risk. And it was just a matter of when and what would cause it. And now we know. And now it has mm-hmm. occurred. Now you have to think the other way, saying, well, there should be some value there. Maybe that's a buy. Problem is, uh, just as I said, I, I think a lot of people are going to be very cautious and nervous. I'm less optimistic or bullish on, on the commercial side of thing. I, I think uh, I want to be careful when I'm, I guess I better clarify what I mean by commercial. I guess I, I'm concerned over shopping malls. I'm concerned over hotels. I'm concerned mm-hmm. over um, the bigger apartments and big companies owning apart, uh, huge amounts of apartments. Um, to me, it's the smaller stuff that's going to recover better. And I think the bigger stuff's got problems and especially office space. Um, I realize a new company would be looking at it saying, gosh, it looks like a nice, uh, nice break there. I, I could buy this or lock myself in on a lease. Well, yeah, you just like any other day, you got to look at what can you afford? What's your risk? And if you come up saying, you know, your business is going to do well, buy that office space because you just got a break. And I think eventually it does go higher before it breaks again. And it's always had breaks at some point. And uh, so you just dial it in with your business plan and see if it works. But as an investor, would I just go rushing out there now and buy up office space? Uh, no, I, I, there's more ways to make money. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd, I'd rather just be in the stock market itself. <laughs> than, right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I can get out of the stock market very fast. Uh, yeah. Some of this real estate, I've made, I've made good money in real estate. I've had times where I made 100, 150% just a single year in real estate. Problem is you can't do that very often. And every once in a while, you get stuck with something. Well, I guess I'll be holding on that for three or four years. <laughs> and then, right. and, yeah. and whereas at least the stock market, you know, I can press a button and I'm, I'm out of a million dollars in my portfolio in a second. You know, it's, it's just fascinating. So to me, it is going to be tricky to um, to really get those, some of those commercial properties that high. It's, it's kind of sad in the sense you look at it saying, I know that's a really good buy. But on the right. other hand, what are you going to make out of it? And right. if it doesn't if it doesn't rally far enough, and then for some strange reason that super cycle at the end of the decade comes in there earlier than I anticipate, comes in at the end of the decade instead of next decade, uh, now the, maybe it goes even lower still, you know. So be a bit cautious. The same thing with large homes. Uh, also dial in the h- higher interest rates. Uh, someday that will work against real estate. Uh, at first, it shouldn't. Uh, it can, but it really shouldn't because normally interest rates go higher right after a recession, and it's normally a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, as always, real estate it does boil down to location, and you, and you got to pick it a little more careful than what you might do in, in other types of investments. But I like what I see on my indicators, at least, which may only be showing me a certain portion of the real estate. I may not realize it, but my indicators are looking optimistic, but they're not necessarily saying this is a fantastic. Well, Rich, talk a little bit about uh, your Critical Point podcast, where they can find it, what they're going to find on that podcast. Sure. So they can find it at criticalpoint.podbean.com. And uh, what they'll find is it's just a very simple site. I got tired years ago of all the, I used to have five websites and there was just so much stuff on them. This is just a list of basically videos, some audios. uh, Most of the audios are really, I'm just doing it on my cell phone and it's just a quick little update or some kind of informational piece for anybody, everybody. The videos is where, what you want. 
And when you click on a video, sometimes a little difficult to see. Somewhere's on there, I'll be a little smaller print that's saying it's a premium service. And what that means is I've locked that video up for my paying subscribers, and you need to click on it and, and pay for it. It's just a monthly recurring fee. It's quite cheap. It's only $27.99 or 99 cents a month. And But I, I don't write a newsletter. I don't throw out big tables and, and databases. Uh, I don't spend a, and I don't want to take a lot of your time. I want to show you on a chart what those signals did in the past. How did everything fluctuate? My guess is it will raise confidence and will say, okay, I'm waiting for that next signal. And then I'm going to show you on that chart and quite possibly even send out an alert saying, buy corn, sell corn, sell the stock market, things like that. And I look at the stock market, the economy. I look at a variety of financial markets, a little bit over in the gold dollar, um, and some, some of the energy, but it's mostly geared towards the grains, stock market, economy, and, and then I love to play with the weather a bit as far as a weather risk. Uh, they can also find me on uh, Twitter at Rich underscore uh, Pawson, and uh, they can also direct uh, message me there. They can email me at rich at ag-financial.com. More than happy to have some conversations and share some ideas here. And um, yeah, get on, get on board and try it. If you don't like it, you know, you just stop paying, right? <laughs> it's like, and to me, as I look at the quality of the signals, uh, I, I run a very high retention. I'm very thankful of uh, here at the first of the year, you could see some people wanted to get started for the year and suddenly had a nice bump in uh, subscribers and followers. Yep. And, uh, yep. So yeah, good stuff, folks. Go check that out. I listen to it. It's there's a lot of good stuff on there. Um, things I don't even, a lot of things I don't understand because I'm just an equipment guy. But Rich does a really good way of explaining things how how uh, how they work. So, um, Rich, anything else you want to make sure we touch on before we shut we shut the podcast down? No, I think that pretty uh, pretty much caps it. We'll see where uh, next week on the economy side, we'll get some PMI indicators, kind of tell us how things went in January. And they may back off a bit because I do think the virus made a little bit of impact going into the end of the year. Mm-hmm. But I also tell myself, normally in winter, the economy does ease off a bit. So I'm not too concerned about it. I think things get better later in the year. Right on. Okay. Well, Rich, looking forward to it. Uh, looking forward to getting back together with you in February, talking about what's going on then. And uh, thank you for being on the podcast, man. Thank you. All right. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Make sure you check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's where you're going to find all the posts that I put out there for the podcast and any blogs I have to uh, have to post as well. Also, go to movingironllc.com, and you can get all the information you need to have for the Moving Iron Summit coming up in Nashville, Tennessee on September 15th through the 17th. So if you're an equipment dealer of any kind, reach out to me. It's open to anybody that wants to come to that. And it'll be a be a great deal. If you want to check out uh, Rich and and uh, what he looks like, as well as uh, what his bio is, go to the Moving Iron podcast page. Go down to Moving Iron podcast contributors, and you'll see myself and you'll see Rich in there as well. So, with that, I am Casey Seymour with Rich Possum. Let's go with some iron, folks. Out. You want to have a meaningful competitive advantage to help sell more equipment. Whether you represent the sales, parts, or management department of an implement dealership, there's a surprising amount of complexity when it comes to tire, wheel, and track technology. Let Axon worry about that so you can get back to supporting your customers. Axon has leveraged years of experience to create a streamlined process that gives you a proven path to help today's grower and sell more equipment. The roots of their organization go back almost 100 years to the invention of the rubber tractor tire. Supporting agriculture is the number one driver of Axon from product development through sales and service. 
To find more or become an Axon dealer, head over to axontire.com. Moving higher in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here.